Um, and that's what it did today is it stopped being great. So um, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we want to lift up uh, Jeannie Dinsmore and uh, pray that you will um, watch over her as she had a fall this morning. I pray that uh, the, the fall was minor, that the injury won't be bad. And I pray that um, the decision to wait to go to the doctor till tomorrow is the right one. And Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen her and, um, and equip her for uh, continued ministry as she continues to serve you. And we pray for Dick that he would uh, be attentive and caring for his wife and uh, his concern would rise up to you in prayer. And uh, Lord, that's our hope as well. So please uh, preserve our sister in Christ and, and bring her back to us soon. Uh, Lord, we pray for the, your word this morning. We pray that you would be with us as we turn to it to understand what it is that you have to say, that um, through the, the riots and the chaos that this portion that, uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, you would speak clearly to us. So be with us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know about you, but this whole section of Acts has really got me flummoxed. I just feel all upended. And as I was looking through it, I thought, you know, it feels chaotic because it is. You remember how it started is Paul goes to Jerusalem and the Jews who believe Jesus but are zealous for the law are angry at him. So go to the temple and take an oath. So he goes to the temple and the Jews who are from Asia get mad at him because they thought he brought a, Jew, a, a Greek into the temple and so they start a riot. And so the, the Romans come down and they arrest him and they're about to drag him off and he speaks Greek to the Roman. And the Roman says, wait, I thought you were Egyptian. And then he turns and he addresses the crowd in Hebrew until he gets to the point where he said he was sent to the Gentiles and then they lose it. And then they drag him into the, the court barracks again. And now we get to this, this part of the story and he's about to be beaten so they can figure out what's actually going on. And he says, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, well that changes everything. Let's go talk to the Jews again. So then they head off to the Jews. They talk to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin, he gets there and he says, hey, I'm a Pharisee. And they go, well, then you're okay. And the other half goes, no, you're not. And it's chaos again. So the Romans show up and they grab him and they drag him off and they pick him back to the barracks. It's like, wow, <laughs> this is really, it feels like chaos because it is. This is, this is the, the kind of theme of what's going on here is, remember the accusation earlier, this man has upset the whole world. They have turned the whole world upside down. Yes, they have. And the world doesn't know what to do with it. And so that's the kind of the, the flow of the story. So coming at this this week, I was just like, I can't land on anything. It's all over the place. And then it occurred to me, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I think that's the style that Luke is writing. But... If you notice when we were doing the reading this morning, right dead center is a, a chapter break. And you know, these chapter breaks, again, are not inspired, so we can violate them, we can you know, just blow past them. But it feels like it's two very different stories, doesn't it? Um, actually, there's, there's some strong connections between the two. There's a misunderstanding about Paul by the tribune and by the high priest or the Sanhedrin. There's a threat of violence by both of them. Paul is uh, able to address this central leader, the tribune and the high priest, to over end, or upend that idea of violence against him. And so there's, there's some parallels between the stories, so I feel justified in drawing these two together. Um, whenever you're reading this stuff, when God shows up and speaks, that's the most important point. That is the central set, uh, piece of this. And so at the very end of this, Jesus comes and he stands besides Paul and he speaks. So figuring out what the story about is about is not very hard. Jesus just told us. 
So the, the theme of this section is really take courage. And we'll see it in three kind of roles here, Roman law, Jewish law, and then Jesus' purpose. And so that's going to be kind of how we work through this. So the first part is, um, remember last week we ended with the response, right? Paul had been giving his defense. Why is he doing what he's doing? And he gets to the part where he says, this Jesus who's risen from the dead, who I've already used terms to indicate that he's Messiah, and they didn't, we, at least Luke doesn't record them getting upset about that. Maybe there was a murmur in the crowd, but Luke passes over it. This Jesus has told me to go to the Gentiles. That's when they lose it. And so verse 22, we'll pick that up again. When they hear that, they yell, away with this fellow from the earth, kill him. He doesn't deserve to live. And they throw their cloaks in the air. They're waving their cloaks in the air, and they're throwing dust in the air. Um, anybody do that? Anybody ever do that? Get mad at the kids or something, and you throw dust in the air? That's a very Eastern way of showing agitation and displeasure. So that was how they would show how upset they were, is they're throwing their cloaks, like shaking them out of the cloaks and throwing dust in the air. And um, that's indicating that this is a real riled-up crowd. They're very angry. So the Tribune then has Paul taken back to the barracks. Remember that barracks was the barracks of Antonia, which was built just off the temple courts. So they, they grab him and they, they haul him back up the rest of the way to the stairs and take him into the, the uh, barracks. And the intention is, it says in the ESV, to examine him by flogging. Um, the flogging that they're going to examine him by was not just, you know, spank his bottom with a wooden paddle. This is a long uh, it's got a wooden handle, it's got long leather straps, and in some cases there was uh, bone and glass embedded in it, like what happened to Jesus when he was interrogated. So the idea was, um, if you had somebody in this much distress, you would either get a confession or the truth out of them. And so that's what the Roman Tribune's idea is, is we'll figure out what's going on with this Paul guy. We're going to get to the bottom of it. Remember the chaos I mentioned? Yeah, the Tribune's getting fed up with it as well. So he's like, we'll just beat him and get an answer. So they take him up the stairs, and they, uh, the ESV says that uh, they stretched him out for the whips. I think that's a bad translation. Um, it's the idea of what happened, but what it says is they tied him up with thongs, with a leather thong. So what had happened was they, they tied him up. They tied him maybe to a pole or a, a pillar. They may have tied him to the ground or maybe strapped him up on a wall, had him hanging from a wall. It's not clear, but the idea is he's bound with leather straps, and he is about to get beaten with a whip. That's, that's what's happening. So at this point, Paul then says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, when I was working through this, I asked the question, is he just being coy? Did he hold on to this little tidbit of information into the last possible second? Um, I'm not sure if he did or not. As a matter of fact, as we go through, if you read this and you think Paul is being coy with the Sanhedrin and, and with the Roman uh, soldiers, you'll read it in one certain direction. I tend to read it in a different direction. Actual mileage may vary, whatever you think is right, but I, I don't think he's, being, he's playing games. I think he's, he's trying to get something done, and I'll explain that when we get there. So then why didn't he tell the, the, the centurion, hey, I'm a Roman? You can't do this. Why didn't he say that from the beginning? A number of possibilities. One is the crowd was so loud, he may not have been heard when he was trying to explain that. Another one is he's trying to identify. Remember last week's sermon, he's trying to identify with the Jews who are yelling at him. He's trying to make a personal connection with them to say, this is, look, I'm one of you, and look how I've progressed. Look at where I've come. So to say at that point, I'm a Roman, might have put a distance between him and the crowd. So maybe he saved it because of that. 
Um, maybe he had said it and they just didn't believe him until this moment. Um, it's hard to say, but at whatever reason, at this point, he, he announces his Roman citizenship. And he asks a very important question, is it lawful to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Um, he could have said, is it lawful to bind a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? Because Roman law for, the, um, for citizens was very clear on this. Uh, the first century Roman uh, statesman Cicero, he's ca uh, commenting on Porcian law. It was at a trial in 65 AD, so maybe 10 years later. And this Porcian law was established 500 BC to 160 BC. So this is the law that's been on the books for a long time. Anyway, Cicero says, it is a misdeed for a Roman citizen to be bound. It is a crime for him to be beaten. It is almost as bad as murder of a father to kill him. So these are the kind of protections that a Roman citizen had. So when Paul says, is it legal for you to do what you're about to do? The centurion and the soldiers freeze. If they beat a Roman citizen without a trial, they could get anything from exile to execution. This is, this is serious. And so they freeze. And so the centurion goes to the, um, to the tribune and he says, what are you going to do? What are you about to do? What are you thinking? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune comes and, and, and inquires, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Now, how could he prove that he was a Roman citizen? Did he pull out his driver's license and say, see, it says right here. Um, they didn't have anything like that. Uh, so there was one of the questions is, how does he prove he's a Roman citizen? Well, if you claim to be a Roman citizen and they found out you weren't, you were executed. You get a theme going with what Rome liked to do? They were big on the execution thing. So if he's lying, he's dead. So the, the tribune, the head guy, the, the man in charge comes and says, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes, I am, by birth. Now, by saying by birth means that his father had achieved citizenship somehow and had been strong enough and powerful enough and rich enough or whatever it took to pass it on to his children. That sounds strange to us because you're born here, you're a citizen. It's no big deal. In Roman culture, that was something to be attained, to something to be achieved. It wasn't automatically conferred on people necessarily. So for example, if you were part of a Roman legion and you were engaged, engaged in a glorious battle, a, a wonderful battle, and you survived and, and you, you triumphed, one of the awards you could be given is you could be given your citizenship. That's how important this was. It was like the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, that kind of thing to say, now you're a citizen. And when they did it for soldiers, they had little plaques that would uh, uh, announce that they were Roman citizens. So if there was ever a question, they could show the plaque. We don't know if Paul had one, but he announces he is one by birth. That's like Roman citizen plus 12. I mean, that's like really how you be a Roman citizen. And the Tribune says, well, I had to buy mine with a lot of money. Anybody here buy their, their citizenship? You're a citizen because you're born here. So this Tribune, he's, he's a high-ranking military official, and he had to buy his citizenship to receive those benefits that Roman law provides. So once he recognizes, yeah, Paul is, a, is a, a, a citizen of Rome. Remember when Paul addressed him in Greek and he said, wait, you speak Greek? And, and Paul's Greek was not just like street Greek, it was, it was polished. So he has now made a very positive impression on this tribune. And so they, they said, all right, we'll stop. We won't, we won't beat him. But for some reason, they leave him bound. 
um, they, they leave him in, in, in chains. And so that's Paul's interaction with Roman law. Is he, he faces Roman law. He uses Roman law to his advantage when it's appropriate. Notice he didn't lead with that. He didn't start out by saying, hey, look, I'm a Roman. Bug off. He, he's trying to be what he says in, in the epistles is all things to all people. So he's going to be a Roman. He's going to be a Jew. He's going to be who he is. And so what happens next? Well, on the next day, desiring to get the real reason he'd been accused, they unbind him. So they left him in, in chains or in, in the leather thongs or something overnight for some reason. Um, but they, they unbind him, and it says that the tribune commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. Now, looking back at the history, the, the tribune did not have the authority to command the council to meet. It's not like he could just snap his fingers and say, get together. He could request. So he might have issued a command to the council saying meet, and they would decide yes or no. Well, they're going to meet to discuss Paul. Yeah, we'll get together. That's not a problem. We'll definitely do that. So they, they convene the council. And what comes next is really a condensed version of what happened. This would have probably been much more elaborate. Um, in, in getting the council together and the opening statements and reading charges and, and recognizing the important people in the room because they're all important people and, and that kind of thing. So this is Luke kind of slimming it down for us. Um, they take Paul down to the council. He's standing in the middle of the council and he announces his, his defense. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in a good conscience up to this day. He starts by using the word Brothers. Now, in the council, what he should have said was fathers and rulers, but he identifies himself as brother. So some people look at that and go, see, he's being cheeky. He's, he's trying to say, you got, I don't recognize your authority. That's a possibility. I think the other possibility is, do you remember how he was explaining himself last week? He said, look, I got letters from the, high pri from the chief priest to go arrest people. So he could, he could say, look, I have a similar authority. I may not be part of the council, but I have been given that similar authority. So he might address them as brothers, not to kind of you know, take them down a notch, but to say, I, I, this is where I was. This is who I am. I have done this stuff. And he, he announces his innocence. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I am innocent of whatever you're going to charge me with. So that's his plea. That's what he says. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Um, we know a bit about Ananias. Um, he is uh, documented outside the Bible. Uh, Josephus talks about him. There's some other uh, documented evidence. And it's not particularly good. Ananias was uh, known to be petulant kind of like to pick a fight and, and get in people's face. He was a glutton. He was a collaborator with Rome. He, uh, one of them described it as he had a liberal use of violence. So telling somebody to smack Paul on the face fits perfectly in line with who Ananias is. Uh, he reigned from 48 to about 58 or 59. Not sure when he stepped down exactly. And everybody hated him. Nobody liked him. Uh, when the war with Rome started in 66, they, the, they burned his house. The Jews burned his house. So he fled to the temple or to the, uh, the palace of Herod the Great, and his brother came there and killed him. So you get the idea, this is not a popular person, right? This is a bad dude. So he orders the people to strike Paul, and Paul's response is unbridled anger. 
He turns and he, he shouts at the man, um, do you strike me, you whitewashed wall? You order me to be stricken. So that term whitewashed wall is an odd turn of phrase. It's not used anywhere else. Um, so trying to figure out exactly what it means. Well, we know Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. And when there was a body in the tomb, you'd paint the, the wall white, and that would tell people to stay away. But it presents this clean image, this white image on the outside, but inside it's full of dead man's bones. So the theory is that when he said you whitewashed wall, he's referring to the wall of the tomb that would have been painted white. That's probably what he means by calling him a whitewashed wall. In other words, you look fine on the outside. Inside, you're full of disease, death, decay, uncleanliness. Cleanliness. Um, so he, he just, in anger, strikes out at this man. And the people standing around him say, would you revile God's high priest? You're going to speak poorly to this man? And Paul says, I, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of your ruler. And that's right out of the law that says you don't do that. He quotes Exodus at that point. So why didn't he know that Ananias was the high priest? Um, not clear. Here's a couple of theories. One is that there was a recent change in the priesthood. It, Ananias was probably put in a couple of years before Paul showed up. You know where Paul's been. We've been following him around the Mediterranean. So he hasn't really been to Jerusalem. Maybe he didn't recognize him. He didn't know who he was. And so he didn't realize that was the high priest. Um, I'm not crazy about that because he would have probably worn robes that would be appropriate with the office. He's been in the temple for the last week or so. Surely he's heard Ananias is now the high priest. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily what's going on. That was my original theory, but had to abandon that. Um, the next one is interesting. It's Paul had bad eyesight. Do you remember how the book of Galatians ends? In Galatians, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. This is how I write. Look at how big my letters are. And the theory was he had bad eyesight, so when he wrote, he had to write in big letters so he could see. So maybe Paul's standing right next to him, and he just sees a blur and doesn't know who it is. And so when he orders him to be stricken, he, he rebukes him for that. Um, another idea is maybe he didn't see who spoke. Right? The way Luke paints the picture is they're standing there having this discussion. But it could be Paul is on the completely opposite side of the room. He may be standing over by the, the exit, and, and uh, Ananias might be at the front. So he might not have been able to see who said it. He might have been just completely away. That's why instead of striking him himself, he says, you guys hit him. Strike it, shut him up. So that's a possibility. And then the other one, remember I said actual mileage may vary. Is he being sassy here? Is he looking and saying, I didn't know, oh, I didn't realize you were the high priest, because surely a high priest would never do anything like this. The high priest would never violate the law and strike somebody. So is he being sassy? Um, my take is he's not. I think what happened is he didn't realize who it was. Probably, and my, my favorite one is he was on the other side of the room and just didn't see who said it. Um, and, and we don't even know if he said it or just motioned. Um, so Paul somehow missed the signal, whether it was verbal or, or physical, and got hit. And so whoever did it is clearly in the wrong, and so he rebukes him. Um, when Paul rebuked him, he said, God is going to strike you. Um, contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Um, actually, there's nothing in the law, as in the Pentateuch, that says you, you can't strike somebody. However, in the oral tradition, and, and oral tradition for the Jews was an interpretation and an application of the law. Uh, in the oral tradition, it said that to strike an Israelite on the cheek is to strike God's glory. So you should never strike somebody like that. Um, 
They didn't have any problem doing that with Jesus. They beat him up quite a bit. So um, he, he's appealing to a law that is not necessarily written, but is, is verbally communicated that's known. What did he do with the, the tribune? He appealed to Roman law. You can't beat me because of Roman law. And now he faces the high priest and he says, you can't beat me because of Jewish law. So that's what I mean. There's a similarity going on here. So he, he tells the priest that he can't do that. And then when they rebuke him, he says, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Does he say, you know what? I don't care because the law doesn't apply in this case because this guy struck me. Paul is still trying to be all things to all people. He's still trying to appeal to the Jews by saying, look, I'm with you. I, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak ill of the high priest. That's, that's a sacred office, and, and I have to respect it. Did he have to respect Ananias as a person? No. He had to respect his office. Ananias was not a person worthy of respect. He was a terrible person. But because of his office, in lieu of who he was in office, he had to show respect to that office, even if it was a bad person. Um, if you've ever been in the military, you're familiar with this. Um, the person with the, the clusters on the shoulders, doesn't matter who's standing under those clusters, you're going to show respect to that person, even if they're a complete jerk. And that's what, kind of what's going on here, is you show respect to the high priest because he's the high priest, even if you don't like him. And so that's what Paul did under Jewish law, following Jewish law. So that's, that's his, his reaction to Jewish law. The next thing that happens is it says Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He would have known that. That was the typical makeup of the council, of the Sanhedrin. It would have been a mix of Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, uh, priests, Levites. These would be the rulers. The elders of Israel would be the rulers. So why is Paul drawing our attention to that? Um, if you're in the sassy camp, well, I kind of like that. That works. If you're in the sassy camp, what he does is he looks and he says, oh, this room's divided. I can get these folks fighting on top of each other in a heartbeat. Just bring up the resurrection and they'll be at each other's throat. So he could be playing it politically and saying, hey, you guys, you know, I'm, I'm here on trial because of the resurrection. Boom, they go at each other. Um, like I said, that's not my take on it. So what I think he does is when he looks up, the reason Luke draws our attention to the divided nature of the, the council is I think what he's thinking is showing us is Paul is going, I'm not going to get a fair trial here. This is going to turn into a circus really quick. So I got to get right to my point. If, if this turns into a debate about law, we're lost. This is what always happens is these two factions go at each other and, and we're lost. So let me get my point in immediately. So once he perceives that's the situation, he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee. I am a Jew. I am a Roman citizen. Now he says, I am a Pharisee, not I was a Pharisee, not I used to be a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. I am of the, the camp, the theological camp of the Pharisees. I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. Apparently his father was a Pharisee as well. And it is, respect, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The hope and the resurrection, is that two different things? Um, that's probably what's called a, a hydendies. Hydeodies, hydeodus, hydeodus, there we go. I, you know, I practiced that word a number of times and I still messed it up, hydeodus. What that means is one through two. And what that means is that word and doesn't separate them into two different things, the hope 
and the resurrection, it unites them. It's kind of like when we say, how are you feeling? Well, I'm nice and cozy. So is the person telling you, I'm nice, see what a nice person I am, and I'm cozy? Or are they saying, in a way, I am nicely cozy, I'm very comfortable? That's, that's where those two come together. So I think that's what he's saying here. As a matter of fact, other translations translate it as, I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection, which is probably a, a better way of doing it, though not quite as literal. So he brings up, brings right to the forefront the resurrection. It is the crux of the issue. This is what has started this whole thing. But hang on for a second. What did the crowd get mad at him for? The crowd got mad at him because he was hanging around with, with Greeks. They thought he brought a Greek into the temple. When he, went to, when he said, I'm going to the Gentiles, they get mad at that. The material reason he's held up before them is because he's associating with Gentiles. Why did the church get angry at him, the, the Jews who held uh, tightly to the law? Because you're abandoning Moses, you're not circumcising your children, and you're, you're changing the way that we're supposed to do things. Is that the resurrection? Those are the external things. Those are the material reasons that he's on trial. But Paul is like, we can argue those things all afternoon, and it won't get us anywhere. Here's the real point. Here is the very central issue, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hasn't that his, been his argument all the way through the book of Acts? Jesus has risen from the dead, therefore he can be the only person who can be the Messiah. And I saw him. I saw him raised from the dead. I know that he's, he's raised from the dead. So that's the crux of the issue. So why is it that the resurrection of Jesus Christ then touches the question of Gentiles? Why is it that the Gentiles are the material reason, but the underlying reason is the resurrection? Because, because of the resurrection of Jesus, the Gentiles are brought in. And so Paul, um, I think he sums this up well in Ephesians chapter 2. He does not directly mention the resurrection in it, but he does talk about Jesus' body and his blood. And we can't think of Jesus as dead without thinking of also raised. So I think it's one step removed implied in this. So listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the, circum the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. While you were Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. And what does that look like? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. So the covenants had been given to Israel. The covenant made in the garden, the covenant made with Noah, the covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made with Moses, the covenant made with David. They contained the promise of the one who would undo the problem of sin. And they were all funneled straight into Israel. So you Gentiles, you were at one time cut off from these. You were alienated from Christ. It's Christ who through those covenant promises is made known. There was a time when you were cut off from them. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By Jesus' death, he has made it so that you can come near. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he's broken down this wall. In other words, in his body pierced and broken, in his death and his resurrection, he's torn down that wall. Do you remember the wall of hostility when Paul was in the temple? 
The court of the Gentiles was supported or surrounded by a small balustrade and it had a severe warning on there. If you are a Gentile and you cross this, this death, your death is on your head and rightly deserved. Does that sound a little hostile? That sounds like a wall of hostility to me. But it wasn't just that wall. That was it was a picture of the hostility that we're seeing now. Right? Paul says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And the Jews get very mad. You can't go to the Gentiles. They're unclean. They're excluded. They're dirty. There is not only a physical wall of hostility. There is a social wall of hostility. And in Christ, in his flesh, he has torn that wall down. It's gone. It's destroyed. Because his blood has made these two different peoples into one. So that's why I'm saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects these two groups and blends them into one. And how did he do this? He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself a new man. Abolishing the law of commandments. What was the charge against Paul? Paul, you're teaching people not to follow the law of Moses. And Paul didn't argue with him. But he said, the law of commandments that causes the separation between Jew and Gentile, that is gone. That is destroyed. So why is it that we are allowed on Easter to enjoy a nice ham dinner? Why is it that everything tastes better with bacon on it? It's because those laws, those dietary laws that said you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, they were designed for one purpose, and that was to separate Israel and make them a distinct and a unique people. It was so personal, it went down to what they ate. It wasn't just, I don't like you because you're a Gentile. It's like, I can't even eat with you because we eat different foods. So when Jesus pronounced all foods clean, he removed that. He removed that barricade. That purpose of, of the dietary laws was completed in who Jesus was. Because in his flesh, he would make the two one. So there was no need for this dietary difference anymore. There's other laws that are like that. So it's, it's, it's the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create one new man in the place of two and make peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. He's going to reconcile both of us, Jew and Gentile, together in one body. So who did Jesus die for on the cross? Did he die for the Jews? John says he died for the nation. Yes. Did he die for the Gentiles? Absolutely. The cross was where he brought the two together in his death and his resurrection. And he made peace. And he reconciled us not just to each other, but to God. So if we're reconciled, both of us are reconciled to God, we can't have the difference between us. God has said, you're one. I'm treating you as one. Are you going to look at God and say, well, yeah, but, you know, we need to maintain a difference. When God has said, no, I've reconciled both of them. They're both okay. So that's the picture of Jesus uh, how Jesus' resurrection is the key to this section, even though the question has been, what, is he, what has it got to do with the Gentiles? It's because Jesus' resurrection means a number of things. One of them is the law has been abolished that separates Jew and Gentile. It's gone. It's over. So remember how he started that section in Ephesians? You who were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. And then he adds this little, little kind of phrase to it, which is done in the flesh by hands. What he's saying is that circumcision that's done in the flesh by hands, that doesn't mean a thing. The circumcision that actually counts is the circumcision of the heart. And by the way, that's extended to Jew and Gentile alike. So they can call you the uncircumcision. They can call themselves the circumcision, but God doesn't treat you that way. You have been circumcised with a new heart. God has reconciled you to himself 
through the cross of Jesus Christ. So do you see now why Paul goes to the resurrection right off the bat? He's going to get lost in the minutia if he starts arguing about um, spirits and, and, and that other stuff. But the resurrection is the crux of the issue. It is the central point. Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? Period. End of discussion. So that was his attempt. That's what he's hoping for. And when he had said this, a discussion arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. They got there anyway. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, one of the, the got to qualify this a little bit, is not all the Pharisees denied all of those things. Um, the, the movement largely was non-spiritual. It was more materialist. But that didn't mean they all uniformly denied those things. When he looks at the assembly, I think he sees this group. This is those type of Pharisees, or Sadducees that deny those things. There's no spirit, no angel, no resurrection. So they're going to fight now. Then a great, a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Totally missing the point. Absolutely missing the point. Where did we go? Spirit or angel? What did Paul bring up? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are they going to argue about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. You know what they do? They put on their theological boxing gloves and they back into their theological corner and they're going to duke it out over their favorite theological issue. There's spirits. No, there's no spirits. There's, spirit, there's angels. No such thing as angels. And they completely miss what he's just said. And, and there's a danger in that because sometimes we can retreat into our theological corners and fight our favorite battles and miss what's going on. I want to fight over this. This is the thing that I'm really good at discussing, and I can really take this apart. Is that the heart of the issue, or is that ancillary? So they say, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to go right back to our fight, and that's exactly what happens, and it gets violent. So when the dissension turned violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn in pieces by them, had his soldiers go down there and remove him by force and take him back to the barracks. Can, I picture this, a bunch of guys standing around in big robes with big head things and yelling and screaming and, and wrestling back and forth, and Roman soldiers come in and start throwing them out of the way. You see bodies flying back and forth. He, they came down with force, with violence, to grab Paul and get him out of there so that this, the tribune didn't have to answer. Now, explain to me again how you got this Roman citizen killed by the Jews. Right before I execute you, you can go ahead and explain that to me. So he's got to rescue him, and he, he goes down and he takes him out. Did he get anywhere with the Jews in the Sanhedrin? Absolutely nowhere. They completely missed the point. We, we can talk about spirits and angels all we want, but the real thing, the thing that Paul is, is, is rock solid on is Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I have seen it, and it proves that he's the Messiah. Let's talk about that. that do you see why he tried to get that in really quick? Because they were going to go into their corners anyway, and, and it just didn't work. They didn't get there, unfortunately. So they haul him off. The, the tribune has got to protect him. He's no longer in bonds, but he's back in the barracks. And that's it. So under Roman law, he appealed to his Roman citizenship to say, you can't beat me. Under Jewish law, he appeals to the Jewish law. saying, you can't knock me around like this. And you've got to hear what I have to say. You don't try somebody without a trial. And it just didn't work. It didn't get him anywhere. This is that chaos I was talking about earlier. It's just a madhouse. So what happens? Well, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, that's the main point. So if you're confused up to this point, Jesus is going to make it all clear for us because he, he shows up and speaks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. 
For, you who have to, you, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then Jesus picked him up and whisked him off to Rome and planted him right in the Roman. He didn't. How did he get to Rome? Well, that's the rest of the book of Acts. I won't spoil it for you. But basically, Rome's going to pay for it. So what happens is Jesus is telling him, as you've testified, as you've spoken clearly about me in Jerusalem, as you have been clear about the resurrection, about my calling of you to the Jews and to the Gentiles, as that has happened, so you will do the same thing in Rome. What we've just seen in microcosm here, talking to Jews, talking to Romans, he's going to go do in the capital of the entire empire. It's going to happen again. Now, when Jesus shows up, it's rare. It, it feels condensed because of the storytelling that, that Luke's doing. But think of how many times Paul has seen the risen Jesus. Road to Damascus. Um, last week we heard that he, he was in the temple and he had a vision and was told. So there was a second appearance. In Corinth, I don't know if you remember that, but he was in Corinth and the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid, there are many people, of, I have many people in this city. And now this is the fourth time. So it's not like Jesus is appearing to Paul constantly. So if Jesus has never physically appeared to you, don't feel bad. It's okay. He doesn't do it often. He does it when it's important. And so it's important that Paul get this message, you're going to Rome. This is how this is going to work. The reason for that is Jesus is using the instrumentality of the Roman and the Jewish government structures to move Paul. Do you hear what he says? As you testified in, in uh, Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. And the reason that that's going to happen is because I'm using the, the governmental structures that are established in Jerusalem to have you proclaim the message of who I am. And now that that's happened here, I'm going to use the, 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 uh, the rules and the regulations of the Roman Empire to move you from Jerusalem to Rome so that you may preach again before this whole big assembly in Rome. That's what I was joking around about. Did Jesus just you know, transport him over there beep, and he's gone? No, you're going to go through this process. You're going to walk through this way. I'm going to use all of these things. So I think the picture there is Jesus can say this because the Jewish um, people and the Roman system are both under his control. They're both under his power. They're going to enact his will whether they want him to or not. So that's where Paul will go, off to Rome with you. That's what's going to happen next. So what do we do with this? This is there's a lot of stuff going on there. What is Luke's purpose in writing this to us? What discipleship principle are we supposed to get on this? Well, one thing I think is in the in the chaos, the back and forth, the who are you and what did you do? We should feel a bit of an identity with that. Because where is our citizenship? Is our citizenship here in an earthly structure? Well, yeah, I've got a driver's license and an ID card that says I'm a US citizen. But ultimately, and re really, in fullness, my citizenship is in heaven. And I am an ambassador here. I am, I am simply here traveling through this land until I receive my citizenship in heaven. So can I say at some times, I'm a Roman citizen, and at other times, I'm a Pharisee, and at other times, I am a Jew? Well, those are earthly alliances, and they are as they are, as God has seen fit to put us in there. Our citizenship more is in heaven than it is here. So Paul is not claiming allegiance to Rome or allegiance to Jerusalem. Did you notice that? 
He simply uses his status in each one to say, you can't do this to me, so that I can get to the resurrection, so that I can announce the resurrection. And this not fitting in anywhere kind of thing is really pretty much standard Christianity. Now, in America, we've, we've had pretty good runs so far. We, we've had good religious freedom and, and a, um, a position of respect largely in, in the community for a long time. But I want you to know it's not normal. This isn't typical. As a matter of fact, even now, it's not normal. Um, in 2018, the British MP Jeremy Hunt set up an independent review into the global persecution of Christians. And he asked it to be conducted by the Bishop of Turaro, the Right Reverend Philip Mount Stephen. Mount Stephen, it's a fancy British name. So what they did is they, they went out and they said, what is the status of Christians around the world? Not just in Great Britain or in, in America, because they're pretty secure here, but globally speaking, what does it look like for the church? And the results were published, well, interim results, they're gonna finalize it, but the interim results were published on Easter. It's estimated that one in three people suffer from religious persecution in, in the world. One in three people with Christians as the most persecuted religious group globally. The interim report said that the main impact of genocidal acts against Christians in Exodus in the Middle East is that they are facing the possibility of being wiped out from the Middle East. There are parts of the Middle East where Christianity is about to be eradicated because of what they call genocidal acts. The evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also increasing severity from the report. In some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide according to that adopted by the UN. So when we see Paul being treated like this, it's not uncommon. It's, it's frighteningly typical that the church gets this kind of treatment throughout the world. Yes, she has had victories in some places, but generally speaking, Christians don't fare well. It, it's just the way it is. So when we sang this morning, let the church rise from the ashes, let the church fall on her knees, that's, that's what happens is we rise, we fall. But we keep going because our citizenship is in heaven. Because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has reconciled us. Because we have a hope in that resurrection. The hope and the resurrection, we have the hope of the resurrection. We look forward to that time when Jesus will return, when we'll be raised with him, and when he will rule the world, not with political manipulations and back and forth, but with a rod of iron in righteousness, in peace. So can we work our way through this world now with the bumps and bruises that we face? Can we apply uh, our American citizenship at times when we, have to when we have to have the rights to be able to speak? Yeah, we should, and we should be proud of the rights that we have. This nation has done a great job with that. But there are other times when we look at our nation and go, this, this ain't my home. This isn't where I live. This is just where I'm serving right now. There's, there's a great country coming that I'll be part of. So this morning on the way to church, I was singing um, the song we sang last week, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Is there trouble? Is there, is there threats? 
challenges on the future, on the horizon, kind of building and rolling our way? Yeah. But even those are under Jesus' control. Even those are when he says, they will only go so far, and then I will rein them back. I will use the kingdoms of this world to accomplish my purpose because of the hope of the resurrection. So that's Paul's purpose. And where we go next is Paul has has gotten into this mess, and the only possible solution is to get him out of Jerusalem. The tribune says there's no way we're going to figure this out. And so the next chapter, the next portion, the next sermon, is Paul has taken that first step towards Rome. And that's, by the way, where the book will end. Did I spoil that for anybody? Anybody unfamiliar with that? Um, That's where the book will end, is, is with Paul in Rome. He will get there. Jesus said, you will go to Rome. He will go to Rome. When Jesus shows up, that's what it's about. So that's what all of this turmoil is about, is to get Paul to Rome so that he can preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the saints that we've heard about around the world, especially the the Christians who are in the Middle East, who face not just rude taunts and, and loss of job, but Lord, there are people who are being executed for their faith. And Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would grant them the strength that they need to to stand, to be good, faithful witnesses of you. Lord, would you give them the faith that they need to trust that you will win in the end and that they can face the persecution now. And Lord, we don't know what's coming for the church in America. We don't know where this nation is heading. We pray that she would continue to express religious freedom so uh, different views can continue to, to articulate what they believe. Um, But, Lord, I pray for your church in America that she wouldn't get fat and lazy and become American citizens. But, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on our citizenship in heaven and remember, Lord, that it's, it's not always comfortable to be a Christian. So, Lord, would you give the church in America strength to stand firm where she should? And to follow what Paul is, is demonstrating for us, a, a wisdom, an insight in when to play the political card and when to not. When to, to shout the gospel and when to shout, I am a blank, so that the gospel might go forward. Lord, please give us the faith that we need to trust you in these areas. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.